0: the formula of Willis H. Carrier described in Part 1, Chapter 2 solve all worry problems? No, of course not. Then, what is the answer? The answer is that we must equip ourselves to deal with the different kinds of worries by learning the three basic steps of problem analysis. The three steps are 1. Get the facts 2. Analyze the facts 3. Arrive at a decision and then act on that decision. Obvious stuff? Yes, I wish to tell taught it and used it. And you and I must use it too if we are going to solve the problems that are harassing us and turning our days and nights into veritable hells. Let's take the first rule, get the facts. Why is it so important to get the facts? Because unless we have the facts, we can't possibly even attempt to solve our problem intelligently. Without the facts, all we can do is steer around in confusion. My idea? No, that was the idea of the late Herbert E. Hawks, Dean of Columbia College, Columbia University, for 22 years. He had helped 200,000 students solve their worry problems and he told me that confusion is the chief cause of worry he put it this way he said half the worry in the world is caused by people trying to make decisions before they have sufficient knowledge on which to base a decision for example he said if i have a problem which has to be faced at three o'clock next tuesday i refuse to even try to make a decision about it until next tuesday arrives in the meantime i concentrate on getting all the facts that bear on the problem I don't worry, he said. I don't agonize over my getting the facts, and by the time Tuesday rolls around, if I've got all the facts, the problem usually solves itself. I asked Dean Hawks if this meant he had licked worry entirely. Yes, he said. I think it can honestly say that my life is now almost totally devoid of worry. I have found, he went on that if a man will devote his time to securing facts in an impartial, objective way, his worries will usually evaporate in the light of knowledge. Let me repeat that. If a man will devote his time to securing facts in an impartial, objective way, his worries will usually evaporate in the light of knowledge. But what do most of us do? If we bother with facts at all, and Thomas Edison said in all seriousness, There is no expedient to which a man will not resort to avoid the labor of thinking. If we bother with facts at all, we hunt like bird dogs after the facts that bolster up what we already think, and ignore all the others. We want only the facts that justify our acts, the facts that fit in conveniently with our wishful thinking and justify our preconceived prejudices. As Andre Mawra put it, everything that is in agreement with our personal desires seems true. Everything that is not puts us into a rage. Is it any wonder then that we find it so hard to get at the answers to our problems? Wouldn't we have the same trouble trying to solve a second grade arithmetic problem if we went ahead on the assumption that 2 plus 2 equals 5, yet there are a lot of people in this world who make life a hell for themselves and others by insisting that 2 plus 2 equals 5, or maybe 500. What can we do about it? We have to keep our emotions out of our thinking, and as Dean Hawkes put it, we must secure the facts in an impartial, objective manner. That is not an easy task when we are worried. When we are worried, our emotions are riding high. But here are two ideas that I have found helpful when trying to step aside from my problems in order to see the facts in a clear, objective manner. Number 1. When trying to get the facts, I pretend that I am collecting this information not for myself, but for some other person. This helps me to take a cold, impartial view of the evidence. This helps me eliminate my emotions. Number two, while trying to collect the facts about the problem that is worrying me, I sometimes pretend that I am a lawyer preparing to argue the other side of the issue. In other words, I try to get all the facts against myself, all the facts that are damaging to my wishes, all the facts that I don't like to face. Then, I write down both my side of the case and the other side of the case. And I generally find that the truth lies somewhere in between these two extremities. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Neither you, nor I, nor Einstein, nor the Supreme Court of the United States, is brilliant enough to reach an intelligent decision on any problem without first getting the facts. Thomas Edison knew that. At the time of his death, he had 2,500 notebooks filled with facts about the problems he was facing. So, rule one for solving our problems is get the facts. Let's do what Dina Hawks did. Let's not even attempt to solve our problems without first collecting all the facts in an impartial manner. However, getting all the facts of the world won't do us any good until we analyze them and interpret them. I have found from costly experience that it is much easier to analyze the facts after writing them down. In fact, merely writing the facts in a piece of paper and stating our problem clearly goes a long way toward helping us reach a sensible decision. As Charles Kettering puts it, A problem well stated is a problem half solved. show you all this as it works out in practice. Since the Chinese say one picture is worth 10,000 words, suppose I show you a picture of how one man put exactly what we are talking about into concrete action. Let's take the case of Galen Litchfield, a man I have known for several years, one of the most successful American businessmen in the Far East. Mr. Litchfield was in China in 1942 when the Japanese invaded Shanghai. And here is his story as he told it to me while I guest in my home. Shortly after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, Galen Litchfield began. They came swarming into Shanghai. I was the manager of the Asia Life Insurance Company in Shanghai. They sent us an army liquidator who was really an admiral, and gave me orders to assist this man in liquidating our assets. I didn't have any choice in the matter. I could cooperate or else. And the or else was certain death. I went through the motions of doing what I was told because I had no alternative. But there was one block of securities worth $750,000, which I left off the list I gave to the Admiral. I left that block of securities off the list because they belonged to our Hong Kong organization and had nothing to do with the Shai- Shanghai assets. All the same, I feared I might be in hot water if the Japanese found out what I had done. And they soon found out. I wasn't in the office when the discovery was made, but my head accountant was there. He told me that the Japanese admiral flew into a rage and stamped and swore and called me a thief and a traitor. I had to fight the Japanese army. I knew what that meant. I would be thrown into the bridge house. The bridge house? the torture chamber of the Japanese Gestapo. I had had personal friends who had killed themselves rather than to be taken to that prison. I had, I had other friends who had died in that place after 10 days of questioning and torture. Now, I was slated for the bridge house myself. What did I do? I heard the news on Sunday afternoon. I suppose I should have been terrified. And I would have been terrified if I hadn't had a definite technique for solving my problems. For years, Whenever I was worried, I had always gone to my typewriter and written down two questions. And the answers to these two questions. Number 1. What am I worrying about? Number 2. What can I do about it? I used to try to answer those questions without writing them down, but I stopped that years ago. I found that writing down both the questions and the answers clarifies my thinking. So. That Sunday afternoon, I went directly to my room at the Shanghai YMCA and got out my typewriter. I wrote, number one, what am I worrying about? I am afraid I will be thrown into the bridge house tomorrow morning. Then I typed out the second question. Number two, what can I do about it? I spent hours thinking out and writing down the four courses of action I could take and what the probable consequence of each action would be. Number One, I can try to explain to the Japanese Admiral, but he doesn't speak English. If I try to explain to him through an interpreter, I may steer him up again. That might mean death. For he is cruel he would rather dump me in the bridge house than bother talking about it. Number two, I can try to escape. Impossible. They keep track of me all the time. I have to check in and out of my room at the YMCA. If I try to escape, I'll probably be captured and shot. 3. I can stay here in my room and not go near the office again. If I do, the Japanese Admiral will be suspicious. He'll probably send soldiers to get me and throw me into the bridge house without giving me a chance to say a word. Number 4. I can go down to the office as usual on Monday morning. If I do, there is a chance that the Japanese Admiral may be so busy that he will not think of what I did. Even if he does think of it, he may have cooled off and not bother me. if this happens, I am all right. Even if he does bother me I still have a chance to try and explain to him. So going down to the office as usual on Monday morning and acting as if nothing had gone wrong gives me two chances to escape the bridge house. I decided to accept the fourth plan, to go down to the office as usual on Monday morning, I felt immensely relieved. When I entered the office the next morning, the Japanese admiral sat there with a cigarette dangling from his mouth. He stared at me as he always did and said nothing. Six weeks later, thank God, he we went back to Tokyo and my worries were ended. As I have already said, I probably saved my life by sitting down that Sunday afternoon and writing out all the various steps I could take and then writing down the probable consequence of each step and calmly coming to a decision. If I hadn't done that, I might have floundered and hesitated and done the wrong thing on the spur of the moment. If I hadn't thought out my problem and come to a decision, I would have been frantic with worry all Sunday afternoon. I wouldn't have slept that night have gone down to the office Monday morning with a harassed and murmured look, and that alone might have aroused the suspicion of the Japanese Admiral and spurred him to act. Experience has proved to me, time after time, the enormous value of arriving at a position. It is the failure to, ri- to arrive at his fixed purpose, the inability to stop going round and round in maddening circles that drives men to nervous breakdowns in living house. I find that 50% of my worries vanishes once I arrive at a clear, definite decision. And another 40% usually vanishes once I start to carry out that decision. So I banish about 90% of my worries by taking these four steps. Number one, writing down precisely what I am worrying about. Number two, writing down what I can do about it. Number three, deciding what to do. And number four, starting immediately to carry out that decision. Dillon Litchfield became the Far Eastern Director for Star, Park, and Freeman Incorporated, representing large insurance and financial interests. This made him one of the most important American businessmen in Asia. And he confessed to me that he owed a large part of his success to this method of analyzing worry and meeting it head-on this method so superb? Because it is efficient, concrete, and goes directly to the heart of the problem. On top of all that, it is climaxed by the third and indispensable rule: do something about it. Unless we carry out our action, all our fact-finding analysis is whistling up wind. It's a sheer waste of energy. William James said this. Once a decision is reached, an execution is the order of the day, dismiss absolutely all responsibility and care about the outcome in this case william james undoubtedly used the word care as a synonym for anxiety he meant once you have made a careful decision based on facts go into action don't stop to reconsider don't begin to hesitate worry and trace your steps don't lose yourself in self-doubting which begets other doubts Don't keep looking back over your shoulder. I once asked Wade Phillips, one of Oklahoma's most prominent oil men, how he carried out decisions. He replied, I find that to keep thinking about our problems beyond a certain point is bound to create confusion and worry. There comes a time when any more investigation and thinking are harmful. There comes a time when you must decide and act and never look back. Why don't you employ Galen Litchfield's technique to one of your worries right now? Here is question number one. What am I worrying about? Question number two. What can I do about it?